0: So, it's the second Sunday after Epiphany. But what does that even mean? So, Epiphany, this year, was January 6th. I think it may be every year. Uh, it usually celebrates the story that we tend to hear at Christmas about the wise men, the magi, coming to visit Jesus and Jesus appearing to them. Some In some traditions, they also celebrate the baptism of Jesus where the Holy Spirit comes down, down and speaks. Um, or the miracle at the wedding that many people have heard of, whether you go to church or not, that Jesus turned water into wine. Um, And this is basically... So it's called the Epiphany. And as you can see in this definition from dictionary.com, the first definition is that it's a Christian festival observed on January 6th, and it commemorates the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, in the Persons of the Magi, and it's the twelfth day of Christmas. The second uh, definition is that it's an appearance or manifestation, especially of a deity. Third, it's a sudden and intuitive perception or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something, usually initiated by some simple, homely, or commonplace occurrence or experience. I don't know if this would be something that the rest of the you have experienced, but I remember as a kid watching this cartoon in school and it was like a physics thing and it was called Eureka and I think that it taught different physics things and there was this, I clearly remember this guy who sat in a tub and saw that it overflowed and realized that objects displace other objects or whatever science lesson, and he said, Eureka! And that kind of, is what an epiphany would be. It's where something normal is happening, but you realize something else, some reality or essential truth that is happening there. Or an epiphany might be a literary work or section of a work that's presenting, usually symbolically, such a moment of revelation and insight. The word epiphany, uh, how it started uh, being applied to this church is that it's from the Koine Greek and it means manifestation or appearance. So this is just celebrating the fact that Jesus was manifested or appeared to the Gentiles. Because without that knowledge, without that happening, we wouldn't have realized or it's part of us realizing that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah to the Jews. He was for everyone in the world which brings us to another one of the readings um, that is assigned for today. Isaiah 49. I'll be reading uh, just a few verses. I'm not going to read all seven. Verse 1 says, Listen to me, all you in distant lands. Pay attention, you who are far away. The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. You will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, by the nature of our faith, by the nature of the fact that we believe that there were two covenants, there was the old covenant, and that was uh, God's relationship that he developed with Uh, Abraham and his descendants, then there was the new covenant that comes to us through Jesus. We are able to read this passage in two ways. How it was first understood and how we understand it now after the epiphany of Jesus, the Christ. So, the first reading. Israel was set apart as the holy people of God. They were set apart for him. In Deuteronomy Uh, this was written, For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. By being gods, by being set apart for him in the world, they represented him. They brought him glory. Isaiah was a prophet that delivered messages from God to bring them back into relationship with God because that's what made them special. The holy, people, the holy people were set apart to be in relationship with God. And by nature of that relationship, they would be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the world. So that would be the initial reading. And then, in light of Jesus, in light of him coming, of him also being for the Gentiles, we understand that Jesus is the one who brought God glory. Jesus is God's representative on earth because he was God made man. And Jesus was the one that was a light to the Gentiles and the one that brought God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And it's with this context that I want us to walk into exploring 1 Corinthians 1 verses one to nine. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes. I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So this is the beginning of a letter to the church in Corinth. If you do not know much about the church in Corinth... There was lots of division and disagreement there. Uh, They're kind of salacious. Pastors love to use the examples of, wow, the problems that were in these churches, the things that these people thought were okay. Um, And it likely, just by nature of the buildings that they had and the way that they met, it was actually probably a lot, a bunch of smaller churches that met in homes. Uh, If you had more than 30 people, you probably had to start meeting in other homes. So it was probably a collection of smaller churches that were all in this city that Paul wrote to. And Paul calls them, you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. Now, this phrase may have resonated with their sense of importance. Um, They were very big into Revelation and um, flashy preachers and things like that. Um, And that phrase... We can understand a little bit more if we look into Romans when Paul also talks about being called by God and he says that God chose people to become like his son, um, that he called them to come to him and then he gave them right standing with himself. So that's what it means to have been called by God to be his holy people. It's to be in relationship with him. But it's of note that he doesn't just say that. He points out all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By adding this, he's intentionally reminding them that they aren't alone in their identity of having been called by God. Instead, they are part of a larger holy people, God's people. He moves on, saying, I always thank my God for you, and for the gracious gifts he has given you, now that you belong to Christ Jesus. He's reminding them again of who they belong to. They are Christ's. Then he says, Through him, God has enriched your church in every way, with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms what I told you about Christ is true. And here we see That Paul expects, uh, he's pointing out that the gifts that God has given them as a church, those are evidence that confirm the truth about what he told them. The truth of what God is doing in and through them. That truth is evidence, or that is evidence of the truth that he taught them. Verse 7. He says, now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not talking to individual people here. He's talking to a church. So when he says, you have every gift you need, he's not saying, you, person who is reading this, at home, by yourself, you have everything you need and you are complete in and of yourself. He's saying, together You who belong to God. God has given you every gift that you need as you wait for the return of our Lord Jesus. And He's acknowledging that space that we live in in the world, the in between. The in between, celebrating that Jesus did come to the world, that He is the source of our salvation, the epiphany that He is for the world, but we're still waiting for the fulfillment. We're waiting for his return. But in the meantime, in this spot, God has given every gift that the church needs. Now, Corinthians, as I mentioned, is not a perfect church by any means. But Paul is confident that they have what they need because he knows how God works. Verse 8, he says, God, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I found it interesting when I was studying that the word that's translated keep you strong in the new living, which is the translation I used here, is actually more of a sense of confirming, establishing, and securing. So it's a lot more of a sense of work that God has done. He has secured you as blameless. That is not something that comes out of our own effort. The New Living called it free from all blame, but it's the sense of not being a call to account, of being unreprovable. God has made us blameless. And if we want to learn more about that, we can look to Colossians and what the author says there, that God has reconciled us to himself through the death of Christ, and as a result, he has brought us into his presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. He has made us blameless so that we can be in relationship with him. With God's working in us, we are able to have partnership with his son, Jesus Christ. Now again, I don't love going back to the original languages and saying that I don't like how a certain translation translated it. Um, And I normally love how the New Living does it. But here, again, in verse 9, it uses the word partnership. And you may have heard the term koinonia before. Uh, People who have spent many years in churches have probably heard it. It's a word that is usually translated fellowship. And here they chose to translate it partnership, which works. It is a word that means coming together, working together, Um, but in using the word partnership, they emphasize a little bit more of the work, and I feel like the word koinonia is really more about the relationship. Another instance that we hear the word koinonia used and it's actually translated fellowship is in Acts 2, when it's talking about The new believers, when they had a whole bunch of people who uh, had become Christians, and all of the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. That's the same word. And it's really not about the work, it's about the relationship, it's about life together. So when we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, we can see that God has established us as blameless and invited us into fellowship, into a life, into a partnership lived with Jesus. John, the gospel writer, told us that the way to abundant life is to know God and Jesus, the one he sent. Knowing him. But I think that in the excitement of having forgiveness, of being able to enter God's presence, it's just been so wonderful we've wanted to share it, which is good. But the difficulty is that I fear that we've turned trying to be a light ourselves into an idol. Paul tells us, that we, the church, are Christ's body. Sometimes we fall into the trap of turning being his hands and feet in the world into the whole point of being his body instead of understanding that the relationship, the connection of him being the head and us being attached to him is the whole point of the metaphor. While we do represent God in the world, we need to consider who is doing the work. In 1 Corinthians 1 verses 1 to 9, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 9 is about the work of God. In this passage alone, these nine verses, Paul tells us that God has called us to be his own holy people, that God has made us holy, that God has given gifts to the church, that God has enriched the church, and that God has invited them into partnership and fellowship with Christ. What does the church do in this scenario? They call on his name, and they eagerly wait. That's it. As I studied this passage, I felt like God was very much showing me that there's nothing special about me, because it's not just me. But there is everything special about us, because we are God's. And these scriptures reassured me that I don't need to focus on what we lack as a church because God has given us the gifts that we need for this season. He knows what we need to be and do and he's provided that for us. Musicians, preachers, projection, sound, Please make good services. I appreciate them. I think we all like having those kind of things. But are they what we need? Are they the point of why we gather? There are a lot of things we can get on our own outside of this building. You can get wonderful Christian music and you can Many of you probably have excellent sound systems with which to listen to it. You can listen to many people preach. You just need to go on YouTube. You could find any flavor of what you want to hear, probably. But we come together, not for those things. We come together because we come together. Because we want fellowship with each other. We want fellowship with each other and with God. We want that relationship. That is why we meet together. And it is a personal, very much a personal passion of mine that the way those meetings look should look different based on the gifts that are here. I have been in many small churches throughout my life, and I have seen many times where people try to produce a product of what they think church should be. And it's hard to produce the product of what you think a church should be when you feel like you don't have the people that are going to make it that way. But this scripture tells us that we have what we need because God has given us the gifts that we need. So when we meet together, it should look like us. It should look like us meeting together, having fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. And sometimes that means we're not going to have someone singing and being a musician. Not either of those things. Thank you for singing with me today. So I found reading this passage and studying this passage to be very reassuring, and I found great peace from it. But one of my practices as I'm preparing a message is I go through a list of questions as I'm looking at the passage of Scripture. And one of the questions is whether any aspects of it offends me or causes an emotional response. And I found as I was studying this I was feeling a great amount of peace, but then also fear. And I realized my biggest fear is that we won't get it. That we aren't, we're going to think that being us is not enough. And I think this is because church has for so long been presented as a commodity that we consume or we sell that it's so deeply ingrained, I'm worried about our ability to get past the idea. So I'm going to explain what I mean by this a little bit. But a commodity we consume, we are so used to church being a place where we feel fuzzy feelings, where we are inspired, where we get a message that's going to directly apply and improve my life, we're going to feel like we were served in some way, that our life was made better just by having been there, or a commodity that we sell, that this is where we practice a shiny faith of shiny people. Don't you want to join us? Life is so good on this side. It's all my problems are solved. We will share just enough struggle, not too much. Oh, goodness, we don't have that much struggle on this side. It's, it's good. Come, come join us. We will give you answers that will make your life better. We'll have the perfect level of questions, but not too much. Let's not get into scary territory here. And I'm making fun of it a bit, but I, I'll be honest, I felt the pull of both of these things, my faith being a commodity my faith being something that's supposed to make my life better, or my faith having to seem good, so it sells good. In my reading this week, I was reading a book that uh, I love, that talks about faith in culture, and specifically faith in our culture. And I just recently did a Masters of Divinity, no one ever knows what you study when you do that, it I tell them people like okay, uh, whatever. Um, But one of the things that I love to study was actually how faith is in culture. And when you look through the history of the church, there are many, many instances in which a faith took on some of the things of the culture. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. This book that I read, Immeasurable. Uh, The author, Sky Jasani, explores ways in which the North American culture has affected our faith. Spoiler. He doesn't talk about many good ways in which the the North American culture has affected our faith. He says things like this. Church moved to America where it became an enterprise. He uses this term called Church Inc., where he talks about how we've been infected by this idea that we are like a corporation. And I'll be honest, the book is very cutting in numerous ways, but good ones. One of the 24 topics he explores is something called missionalism. And it's giving yourself over to the mission instead of to God. He begins the chapter with a story of a church planter who realized that he gave most of his energy to second-rate mission. And this church planter said that most of his life was to planting churches, which was good. But it should have been that his first calling was to live with God. So Jathani explains missionalism as the belief that the worth of one's life is determined by the achievement of a grand objective. And I don't know the experiences that you've had in faith, but being in leadership in many churches, i got to tell you, the vibe is there. We're concerned about how many people we reach. We're concerned about numbers and impact, 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 impact. But it, it can end up really bad. So Jathani says, I believe he's quoting someone else here, missionalism starts slowly and gains a foothold in the leader's attitude. Before long, the mission controls almost everything. Time, relationships, health, spiritual depth, ethics, and convictions. In advanced stages, missionalism means doing whatever it takes to solve the problem. In its worst iter- iter- iteration, the end always justifies the means. The family goes, health is sacrificed, integrity is jeopardized, God connection is limited. Jathani also quotes Tim Keller. An idol is a good thing made into an ultimate thing. And I have seen this. I'm certain I have done this by times. I've been reading as part of working toward ordination. I'm assigned a lot of books. And so currently I'm reading about the Alliance history. And I think that... It's hard to say when someone is telling history, obviously they want to talk about things that were accomplished and things that were started and whatever, and I'm not sure if it's more telling of the author's priorities, but the main emphasis of what I'm reading is over achievements and not faith. They mention the faith of the Alliance founder, and they mention that it was really good and you know how it inspired people, but accomplishments are way more emphasized. And there are hints where they say oh and his family suffered because of this or his health suffered because of this. And yes, he did get strength to continue from God but there's, as a pastor's kid, there's little things where I'm like oh, oh. And some of it was just the culture of the time but what is the culture that we're in right now? I have been so inspired hearing about the history of our own church and its mission and its desire to reach people who wouldn't normally come to church. And I have been truly blown away by the sacrifices of time and finances and just lives that were lived for this. And I am not painting everything or anyone or with this brush. I'm just saying that I don't think we've been immune to this problem. I think we have done good things, but I don't think we've been immune to making an idol over what we want to accomplish. And I can't speak for the early years here, but I have seen evidence of its infection in the years that I've been here, in myself included. And this is something that goes way beyond our circles. It's a way bigger problem, problem than us. We aren't the start of it. We won't be the end of it, but it's here. And in this book, Immeasurable, where Sky Jathani is talking about the mystery of our faith and the things that we allow to come in the way of it. He also says, he quotes uh, Dallas Willard, your system is perfectly designed to produce the results you are getting. Jathani says our church culture is designed to attract, consume, and eject leaders. It is built for failure. Ironically, it refuses to give us a redemptive theology of failure in the process. Uh, deconstruction is a word that you have probably heard by now. Um, There are many people who are deconstructing their faith. And for some people, it's theology reasons. Um, They're not able to reconcile some of their questions about faith with what's going on. Uh, But there's actually many of those who are most struggling with it who were major leaders in churches. And they felt like their involvement in church harmed them. And I've got to be honest. In my own life and for my children, I want a faith that's life-giving, not soul-sucking. And I have seen far too many people sucked dry by a hollow system and then blamed as if it was their personal failing. I think our faith is meant to be more complex than it's allowed to be when we're trying to maintain it as a commodity. If I'm trying to give you something that's just going to be a nice, easy application to your life that's going to improve it, it's not enough. If I am trying to present myself or any of our leaders are trying to present themselves or their faith or their lives as shiny enough that you're going to want to join us on this side, that is not enough. I believe that at church, people should be embraced and valued beyond their use. That we should be able to create the space for celebration and mourning, even at the same time. That we should have space for faith that amazes and doubt that makes us feel like we're going to crumble. Near the beginning of the service, I read the portion of Psalm 40, that was assigned for today. But did you know that there was a section that was left out? It's a portion that's a little more difficult to fit into a traditional North American service, and I even felt when I was trying to think, hey, should I read this whole thing? I was like, I don't know if this really fits for the beginning of a service. But I'm going to read the remaining six verses now. Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me, Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always protect me. For troubles surround me, too many to count. My sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. They outnumber the hairs on my head. I have lost all courage. Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. May those who try to destroy me be humiliated and put to shame. May those who take delight in my trouble be turned back in disgrace. Let them be horrified by their shame, for they say, aha, we've got him now. But may all who search for you be filled with joy and gladness in you. May those who love your salvation repeatedly shout, the Lord is great as for me. Since I am poor and needy, let the Lord keep me in his thoughts. You are my helper and my savior. Oh, my God, do not delay. There are many reasons why we're not always comfortable reading things like that in church. Um, we don't like talking about our sins piling high. Jesus is dealt with everything. I'm all good. Uh, just a side note, I feel like that prevents us from doing self-reflection and getting better at things like pride and the so-called small things. We don't like a song or a prayer that's asking for like, people to be humiliated and put to shame. Um, but as I've studied the Psalms, I've realized they actually contain the spectrum of human emotions and it's okay for us to feel the spectrum of human emotions, and we can still hold the fact that, hey, we should forgive people with sometimes, hey, in between the bad thing happening and the managing to get to the forgiveness, sometimes we are broken and hurting, and we really want to be able to pray, God, can you, like, fix this, take it out of my hands and do something? And I think if our faith is a commodity, we can't say those things if our faith is something that we are living with God, if we are in relationship with Jesus, if Jesus is in my life and I am turning to him no matter what is happening, those feelings are okay. Acknowledging that I am not perfect is okay. If we're trying to turn our faith into a commodity that we can sell, we would much rather limit our Christian experience to the good parts the parts where we can say God has fixed it all and life is good at all, good now, or if we at least believe hard enough, he's gonna fix it all. Sometimes, praise God, we can talk about the healing that he has brought us. I love those hearing those stories. But people shouldn't feel shame that they aren't there, that they haven't received the healing yet. Our faith is about living in the in-between that it's not all perfect yet. This faith is not something that we're selling. It's a life that we're living in this space. A life lived in true fellowship with God. that means that we get to be his no matter what. The Corinthian church was in rough shape when Paul was writing them. But in Paul's understanding, they were still gods. And that is our number one mission. To be gods. To call on his name and eagerly wait for him. Healed and yet still broken sometimes. I'm not really afraid that we aren't going to get this because I know that God has given us all that we need together as a church. And it's my prayer that this season of our church is going to be an epiphany for us. A sudden intuitive perception or insight into the reality or essential meaning of something. the meaning of what it is to be the church. I'm going to have our projection team and sound team to play that song, Heart of Worship, for us again. Um, Encourage you to stay seated, sing along if you'd like, or just reflect as it plays. Um, And then when it's done, uh, you're welcome to head on to your week. Praise it. God would be with you. I believe that he would be with you. But I pray that you would know him as such.